Fuck yeah. Matt Eric, thank you for joining us. How are you, sir? Hey, very well. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks for joining us on Atwood Unleashed. Um, maybe before we get into this uh, wide range of uh, globally connected and uh, consequential topics, you can tell our listeners and audiences um, what exactly is it that you do? How would you describe what keeps you busy? Well, I, I try to wear a lot of hats, um, but uh, overall, I, I guess people call me a, a, a geopolitical analyst, a historian. So I've written a bunch of books on the Clash of the Two Americas, the Untold History of Canada. Each one's a four-volume book series to sort of try to repackage or re-image what is our collective history in North America with an understanding that there has always been this thing that we've recently called Deep State. Um, as far as a fifth column that doesn't represent any particular nation of Canada or the U.S., but has been operating for a supranational oligarchical agency, which never disappeared after 1776, but remained controlling fifth colonists in both countries. So that that book, those book series go through that. I'm the senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. It's a think tank promoting U.S.-Russian friendship and uh, the co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation with my wife, Cynthia Chung. Uh, which is more an education culture. That's one hell of a CV, Matt. Thank you yeah. for that. So you're, cur you're currently in Moscow, did you say? No, no. I'm, in the, I'm based in uh, Quebec, Canada, but it's a uh, Moscow, Washington. They've got two headquarters, one in Washington and one in Moscow um, to promote uh, av avoiding World War III. Um, so, yeah. Uh, okay. And how does that, I mean, are there any sort of, diktats or anything that comes in from the moscow side of thing in terms of restrictions on what you can write i mean because on the face of it russia's not doesn't tend to be a particularly uh welcoming to the idea of a free press does it i mean there's there's a lot of we're, we're in a hardcore information war like they people say oh is world war three gonna happen it's like no nah, it's, it's already begun it, it, the, the, but the battlefield right now is it's asymmetrical a lot of it is in the domain of perceptions the zeitgeist the, the, the topography is in the mind of the people so just like the cold war a lot of this stuff whether it's in this you know china's drinking baby blood you know they've got their soldiers that's actually on on fox news they're they're, they're actually saying chinese soldiers are drinking blood and infiltrating to be part of biden's secret army that they have on Fox News. So you've got like a lot of these crazy over the top tropes and um, the anti-Russian thing right now. They're, they're moving heavy right now to get people to psychologically be prepared for the idea of a major great power confrontation um, or at the very least, the complete cutting off of all relations uh, with a, a new iron curtain at the very least, which has already begun. So, no, I don't get any constrictions or anything like that and um ed lazansky is a um is a nuclear scientist who was a defector from the old soviet union days he defected to the united states in the early 80s and uh became a peace activist as well as a figure who was working on nuclear fusion um and in the early 90s he was part of a back channel or 80s to um arrange for the a, a peaceful dissolution of the soviet union now, he's, I think, in hindsight, realized that he had certain uh, dishonest interests who were also playing with him a little bit and giving false promises with the idea that, look, if the Soviet Union just dissolves, the U.S. will provide, I think the story was a billion dollars or so of money for infrastructure and industrialization. So a lot of people got duped by that. And then it was discovered, well, they never actually intended to follow through on that. So Ed had had a promise with uh, Dan Quayle in those days to create a 
a university called the American University in, in Moscow. And uh, the Russian side promised to provide the, the buildings, which they did in the land. And the U.S. side was supposed to supply the money for the teachers and the curriculum and all that, which they didn't do. And so Ed, uh, Ed Lazansky was given this big building, no means to actually sustain a new university, which might have been in hindsight for the best, because there was a lot of really bad ideas injected into perestroika and the creation of a, of a you know, IMF-controlled oligarchical class from London into Wall Street back in the 90s anyway. So that might have been used for bad effects anyway, in my mind. But then he still had the, the legal control of the entity called the American University. So he said, well, why not make it a think tank at the very least or something to promote conferences, which he did in Washington for years and years on promote, you know, promoting U.S.-Russian friendship. And so it still exists in that form today. That's that's pretty pretty much the effect that it takes. It's a very comprehensive answer, Matt. Thank you very much. Uh, you said something really interesting and terrifying. I might add a moment ago that you, you kind of said World War Three has already started. And I suppose when we look back at wars historically, you know, the goals a lot of the time it could have been colonialism, uh, you know, mm. de defense. It could have been, um, you know, um, a fight over resources and assets. I mean, what what are the kind of targets of war today then in the, in the current era what what are the kind of things that have the most value for people when they do get involved militarily well that's a great question i i mean i think today you know people's people are, have been brainwashed with this idea that money makes the world go round and everything is done for money and sure enough a lot of bad things are done for money and a lot of people do things for money but that's not really i don't think if you if you're if your mind remained on that alone you wouldn't find the causal nexus of what makes wars happen ultimately at the end of the day so it's not, it's beyond the Halliburton you know shareholders behind which Dick Cheney was a part of and behind the oil you know uh you know, the, the the shareholders in Chevron and, and Shell Dutch oil that made a lot of money off of the 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 war the geopolitical conflicts in the Middle East beyond that they're not the initiators of the overall policy um and if you control trillions of dollars um, what motivates you, I don't think, isn't so much profit. It's the power associated with getting stupid people who believe in money to become your instruments to be your will. But you, you believe in power, in control. And it's always obviously easier to control um, fewer people that are dumber, living um, in less healthy conditions, more inclined to fight their neighbors than it is to, to control people who are high in numbers, high in living standards, in harmony with their neighbors, working on things that are for the good of their kids. Those are difficult people to control. You'd prefer the, the, the first package I just enunciated. So I think at the end of the day, uh, a big part of what is driving a lot of the conflicts throughout history, including our present day, is population control, primarily um, mind-body control of people. Um, and the utilization of, you know, ethnic prejudices, territorial disputes, um, are useful to get dumb people to fight their neighbors over whatever you can, you know, whether it's a limited amount of of oil that sort of touches on two neighboring countries, or in the in the days of Europe during the the, the Seven Years' War and the Hundred Years' War before that, a lot of the wars were provoked by, you know, lumber um, getting warring, you know, feudal bar baronials in the German Empire to fight over or princelings to fight over. Who controls this area of lumber, and you know the the it, the people benefiting or funding all sides of the these these armies. Sometimes they had Protestant Catholic divides. Were never found within the fighters. They were always found within the Venetian bankers, far removed, 
uh, funding all sides from the actual conflict. So I think a lot of that is sort of the same sort of situation we have today regarding the South China Sea, different disputes between different neighboring countries around China and China over, you know, who says what part of the the, the seabed is theirs or in the case of the Middle East, it's obvious uh, where the, the lines are divided or Azerbaijan, Armenia, you name it. it. It's all the same game being played left and right. Okay. I mean, that's, that's a great answer. I suppose it feels, I mean, where, where, where you are in your own personal doomsday clock, because I suppose my generation, especially in the West and England, where I am, it's been very comfortable in comparison to previous generations, no great big wars, no conscription, things like that. I've enjoyed an abundance of freedom. Uh, a lot of people, I suppose, may have this naive perception that things that happened in the 30s and the 40s or, you know, even earlier couldn't couldn't possibly happen again. We're far too advanced as a race, of, you know, humans, that is, and we've moved beyond it. Uh, however, we live in a, you know, a, a world now where it feels very much like many things are on a knife edge and you, you throw into the, the mix lots of nuclear weapons and uh, things like that. I mean, how confident are you in... Um, things not going south in, in perhaps our lifetime in, in that regard? Well, I, I got to say, I, I'm, I'm overall a hopeful person. I'm, my, my mind is wired to be solution-oriented, um, and I think top-down. I've, I've really trained myself to think about top-down dynamics, not so much getting – because it's easy to get caught up in the bottom-up, you know um, – myopia of uh, the, the the trees and missing the forest and uh, and so I, I I've really worked hard over over many years to try to always think about well how how can I better understand the historic and spatial dynamics shaping different particular events that are geographically localized so that I can better sort of remove myself from some of the controlled polarizations or false false oppositions that I'm expected to be you know are you with us or are you with the terrorists that type of thing never works mm. there's always this higher <laughs> uh, process that the mind has to keep a hold of. So from that standpoint, I'm optimistic about the broad um, developments that I see unfolding regarding uh, humanity and especially civilizational states that represent very ancient civilizations, which seem to um, have emerged in the recent years with a good sense of oligarchical operations, the tapes of games that are played to of divided, divide to conquer um, that, has allowed for the a lot of the and I'm here referring to a lot of the the multipolar alliance nations of Eurasia that have brought on board the BRICS the Belt and Road Initiative that we're probably going to talk more about today. Um, th there's been I think a paradigm that I've recognized that involves um, both recognizing how oligarchies get us to destroy each other and undermine our our own self interest, which the which which is useful that I'm seeing uh, that that sensitivity, but also a positive sense of win-win cooperation and creating a dynamic of economic development that crosses language, religious uh, borders. And that involves building large-scale infrastructure, science technology that also focuses on creating corridors of stability, whether in the Middle East or Africa, rather than getting poor countries to fight. You, you, we're seeing a lot of the opposite going on with that Eurasian approach. And overcoming limits to growth, creating abundance instead of creating scarcity. So in the West, we're trapped in a model of thinking, which is uh, a death cult in my mind. That's of just like there's there's this idea that the only type of economic value that is encouraged in this type of uh, post-industrial Western structure of the Five Eyes transatlantic community is increasingly become eating bugs, creating scarcity, shutting down 
viable energy sources through carbon reduction emission treaties, creating world government, like getting rid of national sovereignty to world government bodies to enforce order, whatever that may be. Um, in what I'm seeing in that other part of the world, which is currently uh, giving me reason to be a, an optimistic person, is creation of abundance. So you actually have increased uh, rates of productive powers of labor per individual living in those regions, increased rates of education in those zones that are benefiting from the Belt and Road Initiative and other things like that. So I, I think that that's where, on the one hand, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic, but on the other hand, there's a trepidation and a melancholy that I also feel because we're, there's a, especially since October 7th, this complete like doubling down into, into tragedy where all of these great goods could feasibly come undone, you know, and you could just see very quickly the unraveling of the situation um, with that could become a, a, a broad uh, general war sparked in the Middle East that could bring in the entire Arabic world into a conflict with Israel that could trigger military agreements with Western powers tied to NATO. That could happen as well. And I could see it happening. And you're right. Like we're kind of young and or at least too young to properly appreciate the fear of the baby boomers that they went through during the Cold War period, doing ducking covers and all this 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 traumatic stuff that really messed them up. So we we kind of avoided that, but it didn't disappear. It just kind of bubbled down with the dis dissolution of the Soviet Union. The New World Order was proclaimed as having been won by Kissinger and George Bush Senior in '92, and that was supposed to be it. Now it's going to be like the end of history. But as we're discovering, the end of history didn't really happen. And there's actually still uh, a desire by nations to not give up sovereignty and to lay down under a depopulation agenda. So now you have this revival of the old uh, the old nuclear war doctrine. The specter's coming back again. Um, and I don't know if well, they're going to use it. Yeah, uh, it's interesting times, uh, I suppose, mm. if putting it as, yeah. as positively as I can. But I mean, let's talk about this idea of depopulation, rather. And it's something mm. that I think has been, I think you mentioned eating bugs there, and that's been tied with comments made by people associated with the World Economic Forum and, and things like that. Mm. And I'm just wondering, I mean, do you do you look at it as this, this pushing for this kind of thing as something innately sinister with ulterior motives? Or is it possible it's a genuine... A concern about overpopulation and the potential lack of resources the planet might may have to feed people, or obviously increase, you know, uh, export a factory farming model to an up and coming economy and things like that, where it's just not sustainable. But what sort of things are um, inspiring people to talk about depopulation? Oh, you're asking really good questions. Yeah, no, I, I think that there's not just one. It's like what I was saying about the uh, the oil wars, you know, like do are wars caused by oil when there's oil profits to be made? Well, certainly there are uh, people who, who want the wars and even are facilitators of war policies who are tied to wanting to make profit off of oil. That's true. There are those, but they're, they're not the initiators of it. They're, they're not self-aware necessarily of the process that they're reaping a harvest from financially speaking. So I think on the, on the scale of the depopulation agenda, when I look at it, there's a lot of um, very well-intentioned people um, within the Extinction Rebellion or uh, Greenpeace, who are really just, you know, they're, they're people who were processed given a certain type of paradigm in their education system and in their culture that gave them a, a, um, a way of looking at the world. They really care about nature. They authentically believe in overpopulation as a problem. And they really just are, are, are kind of like 
you, you know, you can call it like, uh, um, they're going through climate depression. That's actually a new industry is climate depression. You have it all over universities and in high schools as students are like getting suicidal thoughts over the fact that we're a virus, <laughs> right? That's, a, that's, that's really messed up. Right. Uh, so, but do they actually, did they create the educational climate that brought in Al Gore's propaganda into their schools at an early age before they had critical thinking? Do they, did they control the peer review structure of East Anglia University or uh, Our World and Data, which control the centralized uh, data models and data sets that are then fed into um, universities and governments and NGOs around the world, which are all very centralized, just like they did with the, the whole pandemic thing. Very centralized data, very, very controlled models, very, very selected inner club of people who approve what is discarded as far as climate data versus what is brought into the model. So do they do they control any of that? No, they don't. Um, when I go from a top down standpoint, there we get into something that I would identify as being an absolute um, very, very evil agenda, which seeks to kill off about 90 or so percent of the living population of the earth today, according to certain computer models that have been created through things like the Club of Rome, um, created by some eugenicists <laughs> in the 60s, like, um, or pro-eugenics leaning people like uh, Alexander King, Aurelio Pichai, David Rockefeller, who funded and bankrolled the Club of Rome originally from his original estate in 68, um, that brought the Club of Rome models into the World Economic Forum under a Kissinger uh, mentee named uh, Klaus Schwab, who brought in Aurelio Pichai and who made this thing become normalized in 72, 73, overseen and sponsored by Prince, Prince uh, um, founder of the Bilderberger Group, help me out, um, Bernhardt mm. of the Netherlands, who was the key okay. sponsor and patron of that uh, World Economic Forum Summit. So these, these models that they then enforced as... Because what was the what were these models? It was basically saying, okay, we can take a selected limited amount of variables in terms of pollution, population growth patterns, um, whatever the hell pop pollution is. It's a very broad term, and uh, and then we could plug it plug these into our computer models that are you know just coming online then, and then extrapolate trends into the future to come up with scenarios that would then all forecast apocalyptic. Um, rates of growth of population with a diminishing amount of, of resources. And these are the Neo-Malthusians, the guys who are reviving the, the doctrines of Malthus that presumed mathematically that people would always grow, humans would grow geometrically while food would only be rep reproducible arithmetically, resulting in a future crisis point, which enlightened and social engineers, and he was obviously speaking to the British East India Company, which was the world government sort of corporation of the day that employed him when he was a teacher at the British East India Company, Haley Berry College. So he was not a an ivory tower objective philosopher. He was employed by the world's biggest empire, overseeing the 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 controlled famines of Ireland, of India, um, as part of a population control policy back in the 19th century. So they wanted to revive that since people got stupid enough into believing for a period that Malthus was wrong and people could make discoveries and make new, new technologies that could overcome limits to growth. So that was a delusion that these enlightened elites of the 1960s and 70s were like, nah, nah, we gotta, we gotta train people that Malthus was right and we have new computing technology that Malthus didn't have to prove it. And 
uh, we can all agree that these models say that about 1 billion people is about the sustainable limit that should be permitted forever. Um, and that's sort of, you know, like you see some fake disputes around some people saying, no, it's 2 billion, says Dennis Meadows. But they would live very, but but obviously it would be better if we were 1 billion because we could have more space. But it's like, wait a minute, why is the scarcity even here to begin with? Like everybody's talking about like we have to adapt to scarcity, but it's like, why is there the scarcity? Who killed the scientists who are making discoveries? Who sabotaged the breakthroughs into nuclear fusion, into new, you know, health sciences? Who like there's so much artificial uh, scarcity that's been artificially created in the healthcare sector as well. So that they get us into this fake discussion and fake debate about do you want one billion or two billion people, right? <laughs> How fast do you want to get rid of the nation states that are the cause of wars, right? Do you want to get rid of nation states this way or this way and create world government to create peace? Because nations are the cause of war, we can all agree. So they get us into these fake binary debates, which are based on a false premise completely, right? And so, oh, if I just may pick yeah. up on that, because there's a lot to unpack there. So, I mean, what would be yeah. the ulterior motive for somebody wanting to reduce the population to such an extent, were it not for the you know reasons they've stated, such as you know environmental reasons, resources, uh, in, you know pollution, things like that? Who would benefit? Well, yeah, in in my analysis over the years, I've come to increasingly the conclusion that the continuous intention on the part of oligarchical systems has been feudalism, a romantic idea of feudalism as the best way that we've ever organized society, like pre-nation state, pre-Renaissance, go back to that period where, you know, Europe lost like a quarter of their population into plague and famine, our social fabric broke down because of the Crusades, that whole, there's like an idea, and and there's this idea that masters were masters, slaves were slaves. You were born to most people were in slave families, and you were part of the the terrain that was owned by the 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 serf lord. Um, you were like a you know humans were talking cows. We were happy eating our cud. If we tried to like kill one of the rabbits that are owned by the lord, we would get killed. So we wouldn't do that. If we tried to like venture off our plantation we would get killed or at least put it in like one of those, one of those weird little, you know, wooden, wooden stocks, things. stocks. Yeah. Or get that's right. <laughs> yeah. So everyone is happy in this. I, I know they weren't happy, but the, I think there's been this idea, uh, this romanticization of the glory days. And I think now they want to use sort of a technocratic twist, like a technocratic feudalism to restore some sense that maybe now with an added, factor of drugs and video games the useless useless class of the world will become happy you know feudal entities not that qualitatively different from talking cows and the masters will be able to have their orgies and and just be in their castles separated from the dirty people below and i i think really there's this idea that 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 is really what they want and what they've always wanted it's not like a new thing they want now it's it's always been the desire and I think that that continuous desire and intent underlies a lot of the artificial perversions of history that created a lot of the, the things we take for granted, like the, the wars, World War I, World War II, even the Seven Years' War going way back when, a lot of the, the color revolutions, not even of our current age, but even going back to the Bolshevik Revolution funded by Wall Street London financiers. Um, a lot of the 19th century manipulations of anarchist terrorists that killed many of the statesmen of the world that then ushered in a vacuum of leadership that could bring in um, more puppet regimes or just chaos. Um, a lot of this stuff was coordinated 
artificially incubated, deployed in order to undermine the type of thing that was brought into humanity with the golden renaissance and the idea of human nature that emerged with the golden renaissance and the explosion of creative discoveries in statecraft as well as in architecture and science and medicine, everything. There's a huge explosion. Uh, and you can see the population growth, right? Like when you look at popu historic population uh, growth charts over the last 3,000 years, the, there's something that happened with the Renaissance movement of the 15th century that all of a sudden sees what was a very like slow, almost static growth to a, a geometric massive spike. And if you're just looking at the material expression of all these human beings are being brought online and you're not looking at the, the spiritual, cultural like fiber of excellence that was being introduced that made that possible, you might think, oh yeah, we're like a cancer, uh, cancer cells. The only thing that does that are cancer cells, it, you know? Um, so we're like a cancer. And if you want to deal with cancer, you got to burn it. So you, you get people into that type of fake problem solving uh, mentality when they don't realize that now it's the reason why that was possible is because there was an idea that we were made in the image of God and we could discover God's creation by making leaps, you know, into Eureka's and translate them into new technologies that allowed us to have more space, sustain more people at a higher quality of life. And a political technology was brought online to make and facilitate that process that involved a defense of human liberties as well. The American revolution I see as an outgrowth of that idea that feudalism hereditary power structures are not legitimate with these this new insight and that the 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 law of nations must be based upon the consent of the governed the well-being of the people and the assumption that we're all we all have inalienable rights not because they were given to us by a monarch or some hereditary lord as it was in previous systems but rather because we're we we have you know equal humanity and a power of of using our conscience and our reason together so that was something that they've been trying to undo and put that that genie back in the bottle for like hundreds of years. That, that's what, that's this, how I'm seeing it. Yeah. I mean, doesn't this kind of suppose um, a very competent authority for, for them to orchestrate something like this? I mean, my, my feeling of humanity is probably a bit more negative in that regard. I tend to find that people are quite incompetent, incompetent especially on scale, and you find it very difficult to keep secrets. I mean, do you think, do you think it's possible that the, uh, something, a plan of this nature and, and scale, which would undoubtedly, you know, rely on international cooperation could be orchestrated on the populace in, in general without us either really catching wind of it or, you know, being able mm -hmm. to stop it. It just feels like quite a tall order for sort of an evolved primate. I agree with you. And there is a stupidity factor that you shouldn't ignore. It, it is there. And I, for me, I think that it, it's, it's not, it's not wise to necessarily fall in either giving them too much credit in terms of thinking that there's this continuous like continuous agenda of perfectly evil geniuses operating over generations and that everything that we're experiencing now is the consequence of things that were decided centuries ago. That's not the right thing to do. There is a quality of, of discipline, rigor, and systemic uh, behavior in oligarchical systems, which is almost like impressive if it weren't so perverse. <laughs> But then there is also an insane factor, a crazy and a stupid factor. And that's also an important coexistence of these two seemingly opposite things. Um, human beings are often not not too like we're 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 mixed, we're mixed bag, right? <laughs> a flesh that's and stupidity and, and something brilliant and interesting. Um, I think that the old in in one of the things that struck me in in my 
I, I wrote, I told you this, these book series, uh, one of the things that struck me coming at trying to figure out, well, what is Canada in the first place? That was, that was one of my questions. I was in Canada. I was born in Canada. We're a monarchy. We got a, I started looking into like, well, what makes the decisions of Canada? Well, there's a privy council, there's a privy council office, there's deputy ministers, there's lieutenant governors that are members of the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem, and they always have been since the 1800s. Like, all of these things are unelected. There's a small aspect of it that are like the commons for the commoners. That's where they call it the commons. It's for the commoners. But then there's this whole other thing, which seems to be really weird and continuous for a long time, which is not elected. I, most people don't even know anything about it. And I was like, well, what is this? Well, why is this? You know, and I started like just started, I, I started focusing on certain anomalies in history. I, I was looking at uh, some questions like, well, you know, there was a museum down the street from my house and I went to it and there was like a picture of Benjamin Franklin in this old 500 year old built or 400 year old building and called the Ramsey house. And it had, a, I was like, why is Benjamin Franklin there? And so there was like a little thing on, well, you know, Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin was in Montreal trying to organize this colony, which was French to become part of the other 13 declaring independence back in 1776. We said, no, we want to stay loyal to the British empire, or that's what the elites at the time said, because the, the British empire was, had taken control after the seven years of war. So we, we flubbed it. There were some farmers who went and fought with Washington, but for the most part, the Jesuits were in total control. The Anglican, um, which was sort of, there's an Anglican intelligence aspect overlapping that as well, which said, you know, that had an agreement with the French elites to control the population and keep them in a, in a feudal type of situation. That was the unfortunate thing with the seigneuries. So I was like, okay, uh, they, they basically threatened to, to, ha to excommunicate, excommunicate anyone to burn in hell forever if they, they fought with Washington. So we stayed out of it. We stayed loyal to the British and we started building a history on this idea that we're great because we remained loyal to empire. And they, when we knew that by being patient and never fighting for something, we would, the empire would eventually just give us rights. Lincoln was eventually killed from Canada. Part of my research took me to the fact that Lincoln's murder was made possible through Confederate intelligence operations based in Montreal that sent John Wilkes Booth. He was here for five weeks getting his orders, his money. There's a lot of evidence. I wrote a book on it uh, that killed Lincoln and that the Confederacy, the slave power, had a huge base of operations running terrorist activity from the north against Lincoln um, in British Canada. So I was thinking, well, why would today, 160 or 170 years after Lincoln was murdered, why would the true story of the real murder of Lincoln still be covered up 160 years later? And, and this lone gunman um, w story would still be preserved. Why? Who, it, you know, everybody who was involved with that is long dead. So is it possible that that knowledge would give people better insight into the power structures that are still in, in power today? Hell yes. There's a direct, <laughs> there are active living today, organizing agencies that are still there. Maybe they've been rebranded a little bit, but uh, that ha have a direct fear of the type of truths that people could discover about what made Lincoln's murder happen and what even caused the civil war to begin with, which was not simply U.S. versus South. Like I was saying before, you know, if you look at all of the, the local neighboring countries, uh, fighting over over differences around the world myopically, it seems like everything is contained in that geographical region. But when you take a step back with an appreciation for intelligence operations, global historic dynamics, um, you start seeing, no, there's, there's actually rarely, it, there's always something above what we're being given in our history books. And the, the Civil War is a big one. I wrote, again, I wrote a whole book on this, but it, 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 
you couldn't account for why the Civil War happened if you didn't look at the British Empire, the city of London, and British fifth columnists operating within the United States, always with the mission to undermine and undo what was created with the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence as a model for other nations to follow around the world if they chose to. So there is always this idea to destroy the United States from within if you can't destroy them from the outside, which they tried to do in 1812, didn't work out. So now the, their, their new focus and priority became destroy from within using certain cultural weaknesses uh, and blind spots within the U.S., especially around the slave issue, that uh, were hypocritical. And they could exploit that and cause the U.S. to, to break up from its own self-contradictions. And they, they just, But this was, this was something, again, incubated, cultivated by Anglo-Canadian operations, British-Canadian operations, the British Empire supplying warships, money, supply lines, logistics, just the same way that the U.S. and Britain through the White Helmets and the CIA supplied logistics and support to the Syrian civil war in more recent years using radical proxies like Al-Qaeda or ISIS uh, to undermine and destroy the viability of, so of Syria as a sovereign nation state. There's hundreds of examples of how this is done. So that's where I'm like, there's an element of, of, of brilliance and syst system, uh, system to it, systematic rigor, but there's a crazy factor because the oligarchy also fails at achieving what they want. It's not, it's not like they only wanted that, that the new world order that they've been like, you know, proclaiming in such glory in 1992. It's not like that that was a new thing. They tried to get that before. And oftentimes they will get close to what they want and then it will blow up in their face. They, they, they create processes that they don't fully understand. And that will, that tend to, and have blown up in their faces periodically. And that's an interesting uh, experiment to conduct is like, look at all of those moments in history where the oligarchy came close to achieving their one world fascist regime for a depopulation agenda. Like they almost did with the rise of Hitler and, and, and fascism in the thirties and forties, which couldn't have been, it could not have been a success were it not for massive amounts of support by the DuPonts, the Rockefellers, the Morgans, the, the Montague Normans of the bank of England, the Swiss bankers as well. Uh, working through the Bank of International Settlements, like the amount of of foreign uh, <laughs> foreign agency that had to go into incubating and making the the Nazi machine function and succeed is out never talked about in our history books. But why did they fail? They ultimately it didn't work out the way they that some had intended it should it, that they wanted it to. So this is again where I just find history is is. The oligarchy has, has these these Achilles heels. Yeah, another comprehensive answer there. Thank you. And I just, just want to pivot away from this sort of uh, depopulized, depopulation rhetoric, uh, well, argument rather, and focus on something that I, I suppose has been in discussion for a fair few number of years. This is kind of like the big superpowers in terms of like China and Saudi Arabia. And I, I'm just wondering, have Western nations sort of lost any leverage uh, in terms of what China and Saudi Arabia can get away with, obviously we our entire economy really does uh, depend on you know Saudi oil, perhaps you know Chinese labor market in terms of producing soft uh, you know cheap goods uh, to yeah. sale and things like that. And what we do see as well, I mean, we see in the West we talk a, a good game in terms of you know human rights and, and principles and fair trade and things like that. But it seems like our ability to do anything about that in the direction of say China uh, when they're sort of 
you, you know, you've got the the big scandal over you, uh, the Uyghur Muslims there, Saudi Arabia, and the, the treatment of like sort of homosexuals, women, things like that. And it just seems like we have to say that's completely fine, and because we rely so heavily on what they can provide for our economy. I mean, is is this idea of being ethical just one real big farce in terms of our relationships with these nations? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, the the whole idea of how the human rights discussion has been bandied about over the past, especially the past 30 or so years, um, since I would say, especially since the, the, the George Soros funded Human Rights Watch organization or the International Crisis Group or, you know, the whole responsibility to protect doctrine sponsored again by Soros and Mark Malik Brown um, from Open Society fame. Um, a, a lot of, of this... Um, is totally contaminated with hypocrisy and geopolitics. It's it's not like we really care about the welfare of Muslims in Xinjiang. I mean, the West has been more than happy to oversee the murder of millions of Muslims through regime change operations since 9-11 in Iraq and, and Afghanistan and Libya, uh, which but n- none of which had anything to do with 9-11. You know, 9-11 was, if you look at it, it was... I mean, I'm assuming if people are watching your show, they probably have come to terms with the fact that the official narrative of 9-11 was bunk. And uh, this couldn't have happened without massive complicity of forces inside the U.S. government. Also, the Saudis played a certain role with Prince Bandar bin Sultan. um, Sorry to interrupt. I mean, I I obviously get the the Saudi angle. I believe, you know, 14 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi nationals. But what do you mean in terms of complicity within the, the U.S. government? Um, well, I'm talking about here, uh, well, I mean that when you have the Project for New American Century crowd of Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, Rumsfeld, that whole big New Brzezinski crowd that were brought in in the 70s with camp a, under a Team X, or sorry, Team B in the in the 70s that involved the purge of U.S. intelligence, but also that involved the, the you know, when, when Wolfowitz and, and Paul Nitze and, and all of these creatures were brought in, in the 70s to do what they did, they created these intelligence assessments that Zbigniew oversaw as part of the trilateral commission, right, of David Rockefeller and Kissinger. That's what took over the U.S. in the 70s. That was what was what oversaw the, the Malthusian takeover of the U.S. In, in that period. But then that justified the, the policy that Zbigniew oversaw for the creation of, the, uh, of what became Al-Qaeda. So Operation Cyclone, for example, that was $500 million of U.S. taxpayer money, was justified based on on this assessment of what became the neoconservatives who said, oh no, we have to do these things like fund radical Islamic madrasas as a way to get a proxy war in Afghanistan to suck in the Soviets and destroy the Soviets by radicalizing a bunch of poor uh, alienated Muslim men with the help of the Saudis and some Pakistanis as well, who at the time were, were all on board. Even the US, the CIA had a had a, an outpost in Xinjiang in those days that provided for logistic financial and other support to the terrorists in uh in afghanistan that we called freedom fighters in in those days we were calling them freedom fighters um now keep in mind as well china and afghanistan share a border uh a lot of the 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 muslims living in in xinjiang were also radicalized by the u.s funded radicalizing madrasas supported by you know the saudis up, up at that time and again pakistan played a role um, and got their 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 fighting their training fighting the Soviets. Then they they it's not like they disappeared. They morphed became Al Qaeda. The Muhaj, the radical Mujahideen became Al Qaeda. They continued to be used and sponsored. 
as we've seen in, in multiple reports of what the CIA has been doing in, uh, in Libya with the Libyan Islamic Fighters Group uh, to call them freedom fighters, to overthrow big bad Gaddafi when we didn't like him. And as it turns out in hindsight, those freedom fighters turned out to be mostly Libyan Islamic fighter groups, which was the Libyan branch of Al-Qaeda. They did the same thing for Jabhat al-Nusra, and they were calling them the Free Syrian Army. And it's like, well, like 90% were Al-Qaeda that we were calling freedom fighters when we wanted to dispose of Bashar al-Assad. And, you know, you, you got to look at that tapestry. And then you, the, these creatures who are about to take power uh, after Bill Clinton are already writing policy documents like uh, rebuilding America's defenses, calling for the need for a new Pearl Harbor. They're, they're inside their their project for a new American century document. They're calling for the need to polarize the American zeitgeist around a new Pearl Harbor effect that would then justify a war on terrorism. But they did. They were writing this in like June of 2000 while they were doing war games, war gaming exercises, kind of like Event 201. Like that was a war game. They were doing the same thing with Dark Winter, running war game scenarios of like, hey, Saddam Hussein just did weaponized ballpox that he unleashed in, in America. What do we do? So they were wargaming that before 9-11. They were also wargaming planes flying into World Trade Center buildings. These were like three different war games and the Pentagon. Just to see how it would play out. What would we do? How would NORAD have to be shut down to make this happen? Which is exactly what happened the morning of 9-11. All of the North, Ameri the North American defense systems were all shut down for four hours. <laughs> that was the only way that these weird things could happen anomalously. And then a third building collapses with two planes. So, I mean, you, you take all of these types of anomalies. Right. That it wasn't just it was because people forget about building number seven. Right. That, that also went think, down. But, was... Yeah. I mean, World, World Trade Center seven, the, the building, obviously, that that's obviously front and center in what a lot of people would term 9-11 conspiracy theories or the 9-11 truth sure. movement, etc. But right. there seems to be quite a fair few comprehensive explanations as to what happened to that building. You know, uh, various evidences suggesting, you know, debris hit it, which would set it on fire. And obviously that would lead to its destruction. It just feels like. It feels like to me, if you're going to sort of orchestrate this to then mount a war in Afghanistan on the back of it or a war in Iraq, it might have been useful to put a single Afghanistani citizen or Iraqi on that plane of hijackers. Well, that would have been smart. I agree for propaganda purposes alone. But the fact that we bombed those countries and it was mostly Saudis who were involved. And again, the 28 pages. So there's two things. Number one, um, I've seen those those arguments on popular mechanics, the, the debunking fact check things. Um, I'm sorry. I'm not persuaded by any of those things. There's steel reinforcements in all these buildings. They were designed to deal with the impact of planes. And there's an apoliticization. What they try to do is they they start taking these yeah, sorry these to just developments. Jump, just one one yeah. quick point again they they actually did deal with the impacts of the plane it's the inside the when they designed the buildings they yeah they yeah designed the buildings to prepare and withstand for a plane yeah they did yeah it, that's exactly correct and the buildings did withstand the plane hit the plane hit the building mm. The buildings mm. return to their orig original position within seconds it's the burning full jet fuel that the plate the buildings wasn't designed to withstand which eventually brought them down um number one there's a whole thing i don't want to get caught into this because we can go in for a while um, oh absolutely yeah talk, sure, sure yeah i mean you know we can also talk about how the the plane that all of the jet fuel was able to burn through all of those the the bones the the remnants the steel girders everything but not the passports the two passports that were fine that were found right on the ground uh indicating uh atta and i forget the other guy that's fine like i'm 
there's just so many things that people are expecting me to to turn my brain off of and ignore if I want to hold on to the uh, the meta narrative, the the big story I'm expected to drink that then justified um, that ignores again everything I said about NORAD shutting down. It ignores the entire build up the product, the the whole like neocon hive that said they need a Pearl Harbor. That uh, are you frozen? Am I frozen? Who's frozen? I'm. You don't look frozen to me. Can you hear me? Okay, I can hear you. I just you, I your face froze, but that's okay. All right, but okay. you're but we're there. Okay. Um, and then <clears throat> when I look at things like the 28 pages of the 9/11 Commission report that were recently declassified, again it brings in issues of like why were they declassified? You read them, and they're obviously bringing in the Saudi embassy, Prince Bandar's network that they called him Bandar Bush for a reason. He was a close. A family associate of the Bush family for a long time, very high level in Saudi intelligence. Um, so you have like a whole nexus of operatives. He even oversaw things like the BAE, um, you know, um, forgetting the name, the Dove is the English name for the oil for arms deal with BAE, you know, one tanker of Saudi oil to Britain in exchange for, uh, for uh, arms over the course of 30 years that would then be sold on the spot markets, creating a, a black budget or a black uh, nest of cash that would be built up to fund all sorts of black ops internationally off the official records or the, the Pentagon failing six of their audits, not being able to account for up to $2 trillion. And it's like, how could the Pentagon not, it, where did they lose $2 trillion? And they failed this openly on official media covers this six times. So where is all of this money? How, how, where is it going? Is it just bribes? I don't think so. There's probably other off the books activity that doesn't necessarily abide by international law or human good behavior um, that touched on what I've been talking about. Like the funding of Operation Cyclone was one example of how we created Al Qaeda and continued to use Al Qaeda to this very day as freedom fighters in the 80s and continue to call them freedom fighters in Libya or Syria when there's governments we want overthrown that we don't like, we'll call them that. And then we'll also say that, oh, but they're our enemy and that justifies us bombing countries. Okay. So, well, I mean, just you know, to, I, like just, I want to yeah. pick your brain on something else. So just to I sort hmm. of park uh, 9-11 and, um, uh, you know, the America's influence and the rise of global jihad. Uh, two, yeah. two wonderful topics, by the way. But <laughs> I, I just want to get your opinion on on humans in general and our, and our nature and the world we find ourselves in now in terms of, I suppose, hmm. we're, you know, whether we like it or not, we are a sort of global society now. We're all connected. We're all reliant. Uh, we, we've mm-hmm. got this, you know, mobile supercomputer in our pocket that can tell us in 4K resolution what's happening on the other side of the world almost immediately yeah. after it's happened. These are these are things, uh, you know, human tribes never had to contend with back in the day, you know, almost living in communes in a way, mm-hmm. uh, at very singular goals and concerns. And now we've been thrust into this sort of global society. And, and I've seen people slight you know kind of returning to the idea of nationalism as a response now maybe you know smaller you know you know stronger borders and things like that i mean where are you with this idea of being connected on a a global level is this something human beings can sustain just by their nature well we're we're part there's always a global chemistry i like i i like I said, I tend to think top down. I think about the international uh, global chemistry as far as it affects the context of any individual particular nation or area per se. Now, uh, there's been, I think, a trope that's been artificially created as a fallacy over the years, which has almost become a sacred truth, which is that if you are a nationalist, and I, I also consider myself a nationalist, I believe in, in every nation's right to use protectionism 
uh, to have a national bank to uh, instead of having private financiers control your your credit, you, I think every nation to be a sovereign nation needs to have the right to use these things. Um, but that doesn't make you an isolationist. And I, I think that there's been this false dichotomy of, oh, if you're a nationalist, you must hate dealing with your neighbors. You must hate international mm-hmm. trade. Um, I don't believe that that's ever been true in practice. Whenever I've seen nations use protectionism and you know use national credit emissions for the development of their manufacturing and their industrial uh, development needs throughout whether it was the 19th century or into the 20th century, whenever I've seen it done, I've seen an increased amount of overall productivity of the nation as a whole, an increased amount of full spectrum economic development whereby nations can start producing for their own needs industrially as well as agriculturally such that when they do have more than they need, they trade with their neighbors, but they trade fairly. They're, it doesn't have to be this per, like this idea of just, you know, the lowest price is the law. Let's just use ever diminishing uh, quality of labor to get cheaper, cheaper, you know, uh, payments to the laborers of sweatshops to feed into our dollar stores in a race to the bottom. You don't have that. You, you can actually have people who are moving towards increasing their standards of living and productive output while then trading <laughs> uh, finished goods, you know, where they can finish the goods that they have as raw materials as well, so that the basis of what they consume from their neighbors and trade from their neighbors is just of a higher quality. And you're more able to stand in your own two feet and withstand certain types of supranational financier entities that might want to play dirty tricks and destabilize you through whether speculation like George Soros does against currencies or which really cripple a lot of nations or like uh, the sanction regimes of the U.S. have done, uh, which kills a lot more people than even bombs. When you look at the amount of like food production loss in places in need that are under sanctions, whether in the Middle East or Africa, uh, massive death, especially of children and, and the poor. So, uh, yes, you want to have economic sovereignty. Ideally, you want to strive towards developing full spectrum economics that requires a sort of national economic orientation. And that's not permitted under the age of what Kissinger brought online, which is the consumer society model of, you know, we have the haves, the eaters, the consumers who will be the, consu- the, 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 the post-industrial, you know, clean people. We have ideas and the dirty people will do the sweatshops and they'll stay too poor to purchase what they produce. And that'll be the forever crystallized model of world affairs of like Morlocks and LOI from the, you know, the HG Wells, uh, um, the time machine story of the guy in the future in a million years and humanity split off into like the dirty producers underground, the Morlocks. And then you got the perfect, beautiful, useless people above the ground, the, the blonde Aryan LOI who peri- periodically get eaten by Morlocks. And so, um, I think you, you have sort of these things that are put into nasty practice by uh, by some of these um, oligarchical managers over the years. It's a good answer, I suppose. And um, I'm just wondering, do you, do you think, I mean, humans tend to think in almost utopian terms in like what would be best for humanity? But, you know, socialists would kind of argue if we could just do A, B and C we'd all be prosperous and we could get rid of all the suffering in the world. Other people mm. would argue, obviously capitalism's the way forward. Uh, you know, or maybe I just need more regulation perhaps um, and things like that. Do you think there is a model that human beings could live by, which would almost instantly improve our lot in life? Nah, nah, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I believe in principle. The way I, I see it is I'm not uh, – for, formalisms aren't my game. Um, but I, I think that there's certain universal principles that are always applicable, always have been applicable, whether 10,000 years ago or a million years in the future or whatever, if it, that are, that are going to be true. Like, you know, we're humans to the degree that we're humans and we live in the physical world with a birth and a death and, like, bodily needs that are cyclical, you know. Um, we're going to need water. We're going to need food. Or they need uh, some clothes in their back if we live in an area that's not like a perfect uh, tropical beach. So this means you need productive systems that meet those things. And ideally, you want them to be made better. So there's an idea of I, I'm going to be dead. I'm, I'm going to have kids and grandkids that are going to come after me. I want my that world that they live in to be slightly better in some way than the world I lived in. So you want the productive systems that meet your food and water and, and clothing and other needs uh, to be to, to improve, to have better quality food, better quality water. So to the degree that you have like certain principles active, the, the form and structure could be a variety of things. I've never seen a good application of fascism, but I've seen like, <laughs> I, I, you know, you, you have like, you, you have, you have industrial capitalists who want to create capital. And then you have the, the speculative Davos type of capitalists who want to use the, the veneer of capitalism as an excuse to control or destroy uh, rivals under the George Soros idea of I want to make money with money, even if it kills people who can't eat because I speculated against their currency, whatever. So then you got that. That's like the, the feudal capitalist. And, and I've seen the same examples throughout history of different moments where you've had like good humans who used socialism um, because they cared, they didn't like empire and they cared about social values, but they weren't into like, nobody should have property and the state should control everything. They weren't in that either. And they often got assassinated by the CIA. <laughs> when you look at <laughs> whether it's a Salvador Allende or Kwame Nkrumah or so many other, there's a big list, a huge list um, of good industrial capitalists, good industrial anti-imperial socialists who tend to work together. They tend to get cut down because they tend to be disruptive to certain types of feudal um, utopian visions that some would like to bring on online that would be disrupted by the type of positive developments that would be unleashed if these uh, figures who are very courageous people who knew that they were risking their lives, whether JFK or, or his brother or uh, Enrico Mattei, I mean, again, I'm not going to go through a list of assassinated good leaders, good men who died because they had a, a conscience and used it in political affairs. Um, but if you look at the vision of what they wanted to bring on, they didn't have a utopian end game solution that would be the forever good model of justice, but they had an idea of stopping empire, creating a greater degree of justice and opportunity and, and creating business deals that would be objectively beneficial to themselves and their neighbors instead of just, you know, screwing over your neighbor to steal from them under what appears to be a business contract, but it's not really like a lot of what the IMF or the World Bank have been putting forth with conditionalities that have made the world a lot poorer in many ways by abiding by their conditionalities instead of building up the infrastructure that assassinated leaders would have liked to have done like Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso in the 80s or any, anybody or Yitzhak Rabin in Arafat who tried to build infrastructure out of the Oslo Accords in 92, 93, 94 until Yitzhak was killed by an assassin, not a Muslim. And they requested them that the World Bank allow for a $200 billion, million dollar loan as a, as a first tranche to invest in water desalination infrastructure for the Middle East so that Palestinians and is, uh, Israelis could start working together the, the World Bank said no. They had an emergency meeting in 1993. They said, no, you, we're not going to grant you that right. It would have made billions of dollars. It would have created a viable, workable peace. 
and then they had to kill Yitzhak, and then they had to kill Yasser with poisoning, which was proven um, a few years later. Well, I think I might just be opening a can of worms with four minutes to go, but um, <laughs> just 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 uh, turning back to China, are yeah. China you did they uniquely present a security risk, or is this something that? You know, uh, the media has just portrayed China as, I mean, the discussions we're having, especially, I suppose, in the UK, I'm not sure if this translates in Canada as well, but uh, I mean, I think a, a Chinese spy was just found to have had a relationship with a member of parliament in the UK a couple of months ago. These constant debates about Huawei, uh, TikTok, whether those things can be used as a backdoor way of, you know, harvesting information. Many of our CCTV cameras in America, uh, sorry, in the UK rather, uh, are provided by a Chinese company. And there's a lot of debate as to whether the CCP could demand access to them in, in terms of a spy device and things like that. Does China represent a unique problem in, in this area? I mean, you look at the, the potential Chinese uh, spy balloons in the States and things like that, or is this entirely a kind of media circus? Uh, I see it as a media circus. So, I mean, so I mean, the, the CCP does seem pretty... Um, unscrupulous in, in the way a lot of the ways that it, it behaves in terms of gaining information and, and it, i suppose it has a lot of with it being a sort of communist party as well it doesn't you know it's systems that have a, doesn't have a lot of recourse to go back and it seems like it could possibly get away with a lot more than perhaps western nations could in that regard well let me tell you this there's a um there's a big sacred truth uh oh we got two minutes eh? okay so look, you can do Canada, it i believe in you <laughs> uh the thing that ushered in the entire Cold War was a story called the Guzenko Affair in Canada, where a Russian spy left the Russian embassy with uh, apparently a lot of information that the Russians had a whole network of uh, agents in Canada, the U.S., and Britain. There were secret secret uh, committees overseeing it, royal commissions. Some of these people who were accused went to jail for reasons that we were never told why. And then 50 years later, when it was declassified what this evidence was that nobody ever saw, in 85, journalists went in and they were like, wait a minute, there's no evidence. It's all just like... Uh, <laughs> rolls and rolls of like scanned uh, telephone books and there's no evidence of anything. So the whole thing was justified the psychological weaponization of the people to become afraid of the allies that formerly fought with us to stop Hitler and Nazism and, and Japanese fascism from succeeding in becoming victorious as the basis of a new world order. All of a sudden, those allies who sacrificed so much became our enemies through this very careful uh messaging in the what became the five eyes and the five eyes was also set up to do this so i my my burden of proof is very high my standards are very high when somebody makes a claim i look for evidence and i gotta say for all the evidence that i'm being given of china evil i don't see ever any evidence i see the claims of it from the five eyes in mainstream media but if i look for the actual hard evidence and data I never find anything that is. I mean, more couldn't than, this just be a consequence uh, of the CCP completely repressing any sort of free press or recourse? Well, or or we could take responsibility for the evil that we've permitted to take control of our society instead of blaming other people. I mean, the, the CCP, as far as I could see it right now, is trying to avoid what they see as the collapse of the Western system that we brought onto ourselves. They didn't do it to us. They we we had we allowed this foreign agency of death cultists to take control under Kissinger in the seventies that, that create a bubble economy where there used to be a viable economy that's going to explode and kill a lot of people. And I think that China is not stupid. They see that, that tsunami coming on. They're trying to protect themselves from that. And they've given us a lot of opportunities to work together on BRI projects. All right, Matt, I think we've just went out of time, but if, uh, if you'd like to tell our audience and listeners where they can find more of your work, that'd be great. 
CanadianPatriot.org, RisingTideFoundation.net. My books are available on those sites, as well as uh, MatthewArrett.substack.com. And that's it. Yep. Nicely done, Matt. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for speaking to us. My pleasure. Take care.